Take your Bibles once again. You may be there already since we were just across the page a few moments ago, but 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'll be speaking on the subject, Understanding Grace Giving to Missions. I do this once a year. It's not just sheer force of habit. It's not just a vain tradition. It's, there's a Methodist in my madness here. I have a reason for doing it, and I hope you'll, you'll see if you've never heard me preach on this before. But before I even read this passage about grace giving, let me just say that the most important thing we can do and the most, the greatest priority in missions is to pray. I've been exercised this week about that matter, and some of you have heard me say this already. Some of the men on the prayer Zoom calls, we had one Thursday morning, we had one yesterday morning, we often hear messages from Matthew chapter 9, 36 through 38, wonderful passage, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest, that's the words from the lips of the Son of God, and that is the priority, that's the first thing. Paul said later to Timothy in his first epistle, I believe, chapter 2, verse 1, I will, I exhort therefore that first of all, First of all, prayers, supplications, intercessions, giving of thanks, be made for all men. So this first of all applies to missions too. Praying the Lord of the harvest, that the Lord of the harvest would thrust forth laborers into his harvest field, that's that's the priority. If we're not doing that, we may get kind of motivated for a while about other things. The promotion may get to us, but then it'll fizzle out. But if you get the burden on your heart to pray that God would thrust forth laborers, and you pray that at the family altar, and you pray that in your small prayer groups, and you pray that on Sunday night, you pray that on Wednesday night, let me tell you, God's going to light a fire in your soul. We often hear missionaries come and preach on that. And I think that's one reason I, I tend to not even say anything about that verse, because we hear so many sermons from Matthew chapter 9, 36 through 38. But you know why we don't pray? You know why we seldom pray that way? Two reasons, and this is absolutely free. I'm throwing this in extra before we get to the main event here, okay? I'll tell you why we don't pray. We miss the compassion of Jesus that gave rise to that saying. It was when he saw the multitudes distressed, harassed, depressed. That's what it really means. That's when he said to the disciples, pray the Lord of the harvest. I mentioned in the prayer times this week, since 2008, in the United States of America, there's been a spike in teenage suicides. And the category where it's befallen worst has been teenage girls. They're depressed in record numbers. That bothered Jesus. That broke his heart. We miss the compassion of Jesus, or we would pray the Lord of the harvest to thrust forth labors into his whitened harvest field. But we miss the faith of Jesus. We miss the faith. He said to his disciples, he didn't pray himself. He could have fallen to his knees. And one prayer from the lips of the Son of God, who could testify, my Father hears me always. One prayer from the lips of Jesus would have availed for a thousand prayers from his disciples, but he didn't do it. He turned to them and he said, you pray. You pray. One of my heroes is... John Praying Hyde, the great missionary, went to India in 1892, spent 20 years burning out for Jesus Christ, became the great apostle of prayer, he had an unusual burden of prayer. He, he wouldn't have gone over too good in most churches. <laughs> because if the burden of prayer came over John Praying Hyde, and he was sitting there in prayer, even if he was supposed to speak, he didn't move. <laughs> Somebody else would have to preach. That, that wouldn't go over very good. He minded the Lord. 
He prayed and people were saved. He prayed and people stepped out for Christ. He prayed and missionaries were called. But why why was he called? Maybe you don't know this, but John Praying Hyde had a pastor father, Smith Harris Hyde, pastored up in Wisconsin. And every day he prayed at the family altar, Lord, call my children into the whitened harvest fields. Lord, thrust forth labors from this household. Is it any surprise that three of his six children went into service for Christ? No. And you might be surprised if you started praying how God would call your children to serve the Lord. Would you spend some time this week praying? I'm serious. Before you do anything else, before you fill out the faith promise card, before you say, I'm going to respond and come to the brunch, if you haven't already, would you just spend some time praying that the Lord would get a hold of hearts and thrust forth laborers? Thank God for some that have gone to the foreign field from this church. Thank God for some in the pastorate. Thank God for youth pastors. Thank God for a Christian school teacher that is preparing right now in a Bible college that was called in the last two or three years. But I'm burdened. We haven't seen many from this place where we are surrounded by Bible teaching, where we have Christian influence. Not many people are exercised about, could God be calling me to be a gospel worker? And it may be a bivocational thing. It may not be what we call full-time Christian service. I'm not, more and more God is calling people into bivocational service, and there's more and more fields where you can't go unless you are bivocational. But I hope it's bothering you like it's bothering me. Lord, why are you not gracing us and calling people from our midst into the white and harvest fields? Would you bear that burden with me this week? I hope you will. Okay, that doesn't cost you anything extra. Prayer is the first thing, but then giving ranks right behind it. As we read verse 1 of chapter 8, Moreover, brethren, Paul said, we do you to wit, we want you to know of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, we'll talk about who they are, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality, For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Verse 5, and this they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment. Paul said, I don't have to say this but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. So the sincerity of our love is at stake here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Yet ye through his poverty might be rich. Paul said, I want you to know about God's grace on on some churches in northern Greece the ones in Macedonia, that would be the church at Berea, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Philippi. Paul said, I want you to know what God did, especially in Philippi and Thessalonica. I think you know what grace is. In the Greek, it's the word charis. A number of you have named your daughters charis. That's a very popular name, beautiful name. It means gift or grace. To be graced is to be gifted. God's grace is His unmerited favor to us. Everything we receive from Him is because of His grace. Of course, the greatest matter of grace is the matter of salvation. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. There it is. Grace is a gift. 
But God manifests His grace in more ways than just salvation. Everything is by grace. It's by grace we live. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. The apostle Peter wrote about the manifold grace of God. God's grace is many-sided. It is a multifaceted gem. And one area in which God reveals His grace to us is in this matter of giving. These churches of Macedonia, Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea are held up before us and to the church at Corinth. They're held up as models of grace giving. So today, as we take time to do once every year, we want to learn how they gave, examine to what they gave, and finally, for what purpose they gave. And these principles hold true for all legitimate causes for giving, not just missionary giving. If Paul wanted the Corinthian believers, the church at Corinth, to know of this grace, surely he wants us to know about it also here at Friendship. So could I read it that way? Moreover, brethren, I want you at Friendship to know of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now, Paul, Paul shared enough information with these Corinthian believers that they could imitate the Macedonians. Corinth was southern Greece. Macedonia was northern Greece. Isn't it amazing that when we, people name a church or name a mission board, they may name it Macedonia. They don't name it Corinth. <laughs> it's the Macedonian churches that are examples, not Corinth. Let's look at some matters that are very important about how these churches gave. First of all, the proportion of grace giving. How much did, the, uh, did these Macedonians give by grace? Was it 15%? Was it 25%? Was it 50%? Well, let's look. In verse 3, it says, Paul said, for two, underscore that word two, to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, and so forth. Let's break those two matters up. To their power. That refers to, are you listening? Sacrificial giving. You know, it's hard for some people to give sacrificially. They have so much to begin with. They'd have to divest themselves of so much before they could begin to sacrifice. But these Macedonian believers, they really knew what it was to sacrifice. Because notice their economic conditions in verse 2, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. So they were experiencing great trials of affliction. They were in deep poverty. The whole region of Macedonia, northern Greece, was economically depressed. It had been ravaged by frequent wars. It had been plundered by the Romans. And Paul's letter to the Philippians and to the Thessalonians, of course, who constitute two of the three churches of Macedonia, Paul's letter to those churches makes reference to these sufferings, their afflictions, their persecutions, their deprivations, their tribulations. And yet, you know what? In spite of it all, they were They were happy. Now figure that out. Almost everyone who's gone on a short-term missions trip, maybe a summer trip from our church, and goes to a third world country, although we're not supposed to call it that now anymore, I know, but we used to, but it's some economically depressed place, they all come back saying the same thing. Those people have nothing, but they're happy. Isn't it amazing? We're one of the most affluent countries in the world, but we have... Our teenage girls are committing suicide at record rates. They were happy. Paul spoke of their abundance of joy. You know, some people give, but they're not very happy about it. I say it humorously, but I'm making a serious point. The best, the most appropriate offertory, when a lot of Baptist churches have an offer, I know they don't pass the offering plate as much as they used to, but the most appropriate offertory would be that song, when we asunder part, it does us inward pain. Because that's the expression on a lot of Baptist faces when they give. 
But God loves what kind of a giver? A cheerful giver. Amen. If anybody could have excused themselves for not giving, it was believers in the churches of Macedonia. They could easily have said, you know, now Paul, we, we, it's a commendable thing you have in mind. We're not knocking you. We wish we could do something right now, but we can't. We are in extreme difficult times. We don't know what our economic future holds. The prudent measure would be to just hang on to what we got. I mean, it would be bad stewardship to give too much now and not have enough for tomorrow. And there would be plenty of Christian sources to back you up. But aren't you glad they didn't do that? Or we wouldn't be talking about them. They entered into real sacrifice. I'm sure there's some people I'm talking to here this morning. You'd be the last person to say it because you don't want to toot your own horn, but you know what sacrifice is. And you can call attention to the faithfulness of God to supply your needs as you have sought first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But maybe you've never sacrificed in your life. Maybe I'm talking to people today, I mean, it's really hard for you to even figure out, how can I sacrifice? I've got so much. I live in such a nice home. I've got two or three cars. I've got all the amenities of life. I never say no to anything that I really want. Well, maybe I could just suggest something. Why don't you just begin by sacrificing something, just doing without something you ordinarily do every week? And commit the equivalent of that to missions, to the Lord's work. I think it'd be good for us to do that if we've never done it before. Can I remind you of what King David did? We think of David, when we think of his sin, we think of his sin with Bathsheba, but there was another great sin recorded in the Word of God. Remember which one it was? When he was lifted up in pride, 2 Samuel 24, in his mature years. David was lifted up in pride, and he had Joab go out and number all of the hosts of Israel. He wanted to see how big his army was. He wanted to gloat in the size of his military prowess. God wasn't humored by that. God didn't like that. God judged that. And the way he judged it was he killed 70,000 Israelites. Can you imagine... 70,000 people being killed because of the pride of our leader? That'd be pretty serious. But David, to his credit, responded in the right way. He was utterly humbled, prostrated before the Lord. And we see him just bowing before God and saying, These sheep, what have they done, Lord? It's me. And so he was ready to offer a sacrifice. He wanted forgiveness for his sin. And he was at the threshing floor of a neighboring monarch, Arana the Jebusite. And so he offered to buy that threshing floor and the instruments so that he could offer a sacrifice and the cattle there. But Arana the neighboring monarch said, no, it's my honor, it'd be my privilege to give it, David, in so much as the Lord would be entreated by it. And this is David's response to this neighboring monarch. He said, David said to him, I will not offer to the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. And those words ought to speak for every Christian that we ought to repudiate all cheap service and cheap giving to the Lord. I hope that what you decide to put on that little card and what you start putting in the offering plate every Sunday will not reflect cheap service, but it will cost you something. I don't hesitate to say that. Oh, the privilege of sacrifice. Do you realize that one day we won't have that? We won't have that in heaven. But there's another way that these Macedonians gave. They not only gave sacrificially, they gave by faith. And that's expressed by that little phrase in verse 3. 
beyond their power. It was to their power, that's sacrifice, but then Paul said, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves. This was something they could not do. If it was to their power, it was something they could do, even if it was a sacrifice. But after they had sacrificed, these believers still weren't satisfied. Isn't it amazing? They must have prayed and they said, Lord, you've graced us, you've saved us, you've sent people to us to tell us about your son and and salvation, or, or we would be of all men most hopeless. We're doing all we can do, but if you will grace us, Lord, we'd like to do more. The Christian who never learns to sacrifice is not likely to ever do that. Praise God for the memory of Dr. John Halsey. He was a member of this church for like 13 years. And the Lord really used him to help us understand faith, promise, giving to missions. Many of you have heard him preach along this line. Some of the things I'll say came right from his playbook. But they're scriptural. They came from the Bible. And Dr. Halsey would often say, degrees in faith are awarded at Sacrifice University. Faith is taking God at His Word. In this matter of of, of faith giving, we claim Luke 6, verse 38, where Jesus said, give, and it shall be given you. Sometimes we think that faith promises just, you know, trusting God to find some money on the sidewalk, and you say, okay, that's my faith promise. I'll give it to missions next Sunday. No, it doesn't work that way. It might once or twice, but not likely. You go ahead and give it, and then you trust God to provide and make it up. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall man give unto unto your bosom. We give, and then we watch God work, and God makes all grace abound toward us. And many of you could say, amen, amen, amen. You've seen Him do it again and again, year after year. That's faith. That's grace. Could I say, by way of addition here, that this matter of grace giving or faith promise giving that we've talked about year after year, if we understand what Paul is saying to the the Macedonian believers, actually about the Macedonian believers to the church at Corinth, he's saying this is strictly voluntary. Verse 3, he says these believers were willing of themselves to do this. They did it of their own accord. And in verse 8, he says to the, to the uh, uh, Corinthians, I speak not by commandment. It's strictly voluntary matter. Verse 12, for if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. But may I hasten to add and tell you what Paul also told these same believers in verse 10. He said, I advise you to do it. Verse 10, and herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you. This is to your benefit. This is to your advantage. Just as Jesus said, it is expedient for you if I go away, because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. And Paul says, this is to your advantage. It is expedient for you. It is to your benefit. He says, beloved, you don't have to do it, but I'm sure praying that you will. I'm praying that you will enter into this willingly. You will not do it grudgingly because God loves a cheerful giver. Giving by faith to that cause which is nearest to the heart of God. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Secondly, I want you to see the prerequisite for grace giving. There's a precondition here in verse 5. It says, and this they did not as we hoped but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. These Macedonian believers gave themselves first, as if they put themselves in the offering plate. You know, when God gets your heart, He'll have your pocketbook. That's what it boils down to. The issue really isn't money. The issue is consecration of ourselves. As Paul told the, uh, the Romans in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So let me just ask you, have you personally consecrated yourself to the Lord? That's where worship begins. That's where the grace of giving begins. 
We need to realize that we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we offer ourselves as loving bond slaves to Him, that frees us from the tyranny of materialism. And oh, how we're eaten up with it here in the United States of America. I keep hearing, and, and I consider myself a conservative, but I keep hearing conservative voices talk about how bad the economy is and, and how bad inflation is, and I just scratch my head and I say, what we consider poverty here is luxury in most places in the world. It really is. We think we've got it bad. We don't know what bad is. They first gave themselves. That's not first in, in order of time. That's first in priority. The first priority of these Macedonians was to give themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord, and then their giving just followed their hearts. Now, sometimes just the opposite happens. Sometimes people just give their money and their hearts follow. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That happened with uh, Cornelius in the book of Acts. He gave alms. He was a generous man. He had a heart for the Jewish people. And then what did the Lord do? The Lord sent him Peter to tell him how to be saved so his heart could get right. Well, please don't misunderstand me. We've had people who weren't even saved to make faith promise commitments, and I don't forbid that. I don't solicit money from them. But some, we've had people give to God's work, and then their hearts followed, just like Cornelius. What God really wants is us, not our money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the gold under the hills. And if that were to get depleted, I think he's perfectly capable of creating some more, don't you? He wants us, not our money. And by the way, since we're praying the Lord of the harvest that he would thrust forth laborers into his harvest field, if God is dealing with you about that, if God wants you to go and, and, and serve him somewhere or in some way be involved in gospel work in an official capacity, don't try to substitute your giving for that. There's no substitute for you. God wants you. Don't try to tip God. Don't try to bribe God. Give yourself to the Lord. Then give yourself to His servants. And we don't usually talk about this, but he, in verse 5, this they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us, Paul says, by the will of God. What did he mean by that? These Macedonian believers gave themselves to us. Was Paul profiting by this? Were Paul and Timothy and Titus were they skimming off the top? Oh, no. They weren't getting anything off of this except the satisfaction of knowing that God was honored. They were the ones who had instigated this special offering. And so the devotion of these believers led them to submit to the leadership of their pastors. Let me just put it bluntly. I, I, I run the risk of being misunderstood here, but some of you do not know the missionaries that you're going to meet. Wednesday night. I'll be honest, you're trusting me about this. I have met them. I have vetted them. Some of them I've known for some time. And now I'm recommending them and having them come to this conference. And I'm praying that you will catch the burden to support them and pray for them and be a part of their ministry. So you are giving yourself unto me in that sense. I don't, I don't take that for granted. Thirdly, I want you to see the purpose for their giving, this grace giving. To what cause were these Macedonians giving? Let me answer that, first of all, by saying that it was to a spiritual cause. There are many worthy causes to which you can give. And you hear it, they, they keep changing over time. For a long time, it was the March of Dimes and... Uh, pink ladies and those things, Easter seals and so forth. Now we've got tunnel to towers and we've got wounded warriors and all other kinds of other things. Good causes. I have no doubt about it at all. But the priority in our giving as Christians should be to give to the Lord. 
and to His priority. And Galatians 6 verse 10 says this, as ye have therefore opportunity, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, unsaved men as well as saved men, but it goes on to say, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And that's exactly what these Christians in northern Greece were helping to do by their sacrificial faith giving. They were helping, first of all, fellow believers. We call this benevolence giving. The offering that Paul is referring to here and in several other places in his epistles was to help the poor saints back in Jerusalem, the poor Jewish believers. Paul was so burdened for these Jewish brethren, his compatriots, his brethren according to the flesh, who were suffering. So he talked about it a lot. He talked about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. He talked about it in Romans chapter 15. I think that's the most touching place. Romans 15, 25 through 27. I won't have you turn there, but he talked about, he said, I plan to come see you guys, you believers in, in Rome. I haven't been there in a long time. I'm planning to do it. Whenever I make a trip into Spain, I want to do it. But first of all, I've got to go back to Jerusalem. Why? Because he said, I've got this offering to give to the poor Jewish believers there. He said the Gentiles and Macedonia and other places had been collecting this offering. He said, and it's a good thing that they're doing this. He said, because these Gentiles were the beneficiaries of the gospel that was sent out by these poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And now they're returning the favor and they're giving, ministering to them of their money, their material things, having received the spiritual things of them. Some of you right here were led to Christ by somebody that may be in need right now. You have an opportunity to return the favor and be a blessing to them. I hope you will. Sometimes God lets His choice children have needs. So these poor Jewish believers back in Jerusalem were poor. They were suffering. They were hurting. They were doing without. You say, why? Well, there's some reasons. I think it's worth taking the time to talk about that. The Jerusalem church consisted primarily of of pilgrims, of foreigners, of strangers. 3,000 were saved on one day, the day of Pentecost. They were from 15 nationality groups that are listed right there in Acts chapter 2. What happened to those people? Could they go back and be discipled in their home church? Are you kidding? There were no Christians back in their hometown. How are they going to get discipled? How are they going to learn anything about the Word of God? They had to stay right there in Jerusalem where they got saved and learned from the apostles. That created quite a burden on the infrastructure. That's why people did what they did. That's why Barnabas did what he did. Sold property. Laid it at the apostles' feet. Distribution was made to every man according as he had need. Because there was a great financial burden on all these host families. Why were these Jewish believers so poor? Well, secondly, it was because of persecution. Many of these new converts, don't you know, lost their jobs or had their businesses confiscated or were ostracized by their families and friends. No doubt that their families had funerals for some of them. Not everyone appreciates Christians. Even those who have a great work ethic. Maybe some of you heard, kept up with the news this week. Out there in Arizona, a school board met. I think it was Washington Elementary. And they voted not to allow student teachers in their elementary school system from Arizona Christian University. They said, we can't have that anymore because they take a stand against LGBTQ on their website. That's just the beginning, folks. That's going to happen more and more. Student teachers from a Christian university aren't going to be able to teach in the secular school system. Thirdly, the generally poor economic climate of the region that contributed to the poverty of these Jewish believers. The Romans imposed a heavy tax burden on their conquered territories. And this exacerbated the problem with deep and rampant poverty. And so the Apostle Paul wanted to not only relieve the distress of his beloved brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, but he knew that this gesture 
on the part of the Gentile believers in sharing with their Jewish brethren. He knew that that would be a great blessing, a great testimony of unity and love. And he welcomed this wonderful, magnanimous gesture, unity of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. So the point of the matter is to what were they giving? They were giving to benevolence. They were relieving the needs of the poor saints, especially back in the church at Jerusalem. But that is not all. Please listen, because here's where faith promise gets a bum rap. I've heard good people, good godly men, say that this is just a faith, it's just a fundraising scheme that we're doing, and they miss this key point. These believers were not just giving to benevolence, they were giving to world evangelization. I heard two amens. So I think I need to park here a while, labor this point. They were giving sacrificially, they were giving by faith for world evangelization. All right, stay with me, hang in there with me. What was their economic condition? They were in deep poverty. They were experiencing a great trial of affliction. So if they gave anything, it had to be either sacrificially or by faith. Have we got that? If we understand their true condition. So if we can find that any of these churches, the church at Philippi or the church at Thessalonica, in the same condition at the same time was giving to missionary causes, would you say that that had to be either sacrificially or by faith? Where would we find a record of that? Well, shouldn't we go to one of the letters that Paul wrote to these churches? In fact, I'll go to two letters. I'll, I'll throw in an extra one. First of all, the church at Philippi. Would you turn to Philippians chapter 4? Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul is in prison. He is gone for a long time without receiving any, anything uh, to relieve his physical needs and suffering, probably because Epaphroditus, the brother who was dispatched from the church at Philippi, didn't know where he was. They didn't have satellite. He didn't have a cell phone. But finally, Epaphroditus got there with an offering from the church at Philippi, and Paul refers to it, and he thanks them for it, and he rejoices in it. Verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. It languished for a while. They didn't know where he was. Wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Verse 11, not that I, respect, I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Don't separate that verse from its context. Verse 14, notwithstanding ye have well done that ye did communicate, you shared with my, with, with my affliction. Now look at verse 15. Now ye Philippians know also, these believers at the, in the city of Philippi, which was a Roman province, that in the beginning of the gospel, that means when he was in missionary activity, when I departed from Macedonia, northern Greece, no church communicated, no church shared with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only, for even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Stop for a moment. Who was Paul? He was an apostle, yes. He was giving the gospel to the Gentiles from place to place, going from city to city, house to house, winning people to Christ, baptizing them, training elders, establishing churches, and then he'd move on to the next place and do it all over again. What do we call that today? Ah, missionary. So what kind of offering was this from the church at Philippi? A missionary offering. How did they give it? By faith. They were already sacrificing. Well, what about the church at Thessalonica? Same thing. Look at, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. I don't want you doing this just because I tell you to, and I'm trying to get you all excited, but I want you to see the scriptural basis for it. 
and many of you have, and you've been doing this for years. When Paul left Philippi, he went to Thessalonica to start a church. You saw that reference there in Philippians chapter 4. And notice what he says here. Many of them turned to God from idols. And he said, verse 6, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word, how? In much affliction. Ah, that's their economic status. With joy of the Holy Ghost. But did this affliction hinder them from taking ownership of responsibility to spread the gospel? Oh, no. Look at verse 8. I I feel like shouting when I get to this verse. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia, not only in northern Greece uh, uh, and Achaia, that would be where Corinth was, southern Greece, but also in every place. Your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. Paul said, I can't go anywhere and give the gospel, but what somebody says, yeah, we've already heard it from from the saints at Thessalonica. What a missionary church. How did they do it? They were poor. They were giving sacrificially, and they were giving by faith, and that's all the only way they could give. Paul himself testified to the Corinthians a little later in his second letter, chapter 11, verse 8. I like this. He said, I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. Many of you remember Dr. Halsey. He would stand here and say, right before a missions conference, he'd say, I'm warning you people, there are missionaries coming this week and they're going to rob you. <laughs> of course, that was just a matter of speaking. What did Paul mean when he said, I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service? Paul simply meant that he was able to minister without charge at Corinth. He could evangelize there because other churches, namely the churches from Macedonia, the church at Philippi and the church at Thessalonica, had set him as their missionary, and they were paying his expenses. In fact, in verse 9, he makes this clear. And when I was present with you in the church at Corinth and wanted or lacked, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. He made the gospel without charge when he went to Corinth. Hey, let me borrow your imagination. How do you think it would have said if when he got to Corinth, the Acropolis or whatever it was there, was in Athens. But he went to the place of gathering, and he got everybody's attention, leading citizens, and he said, look, you are the luckiest people in all the world. Out of all the places I could have gone to give the gospel, I decided to come to you, to tell you how you can have the hope of eternal life, and it's all wrapped up in the person, Jesus Christ. And now, if you'll just put some money in this pouch that I'm passing, we can make it happen. How do you think that would have said? I know some faith healers that do that. You've probably seen some on TV. Well, Paul can do that. Somebody else who had experienced redemption and whose hearts were full of gratitude for God's so great salvation, they had to be the one to give to support Paul so that he could go to their southern neighbors and give them the gospel. That's how it works. One more thing and I'm done. I want you to see the pattern for grace giving. The pattern for grace giving, the greatest incentive, the greatest example of giving is not the Macedonian believers, as wonderful as they were, and as much as Paul held them up before the Corinthian saints. The greatest example for giving, the greatest model is who? You know, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. The greatest giver is God. And when God gave His Son, He gave His best. But wait a minute. It wasn't just God who gave. Jesus gave Himself. As it's testified of Him in the 40th Psalm, He he, he said, I delight to do Thy will, O my God. Yea, Thy law is within my heart. That's why He came to this earth. He impoverished Himself. 
Paul said, for your sakes he became poor. Yes, he was poor. He was born to poor parents in a humble stable. Mary and Joseph had to give the sacrifice of the poor in the temple when he was dedicated. He wore a peasant's robe. He had no place to lay his head. He said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man hath no place to lay his head. In order to ride into the city of Jerusalem, he had to borrow a donkey. In order to meet with his disciples for the Last Supper, he had to borrow an upper room. In order to be buried, he had to borrow a tomb. Jesus humbled himself to leave heaven and take upon him the likeness of sinful flesh. Yes, he took upon him the form of a humble servant. Why? For our sakes. For your sakes he became poor. You know, he was poor, but really when you stop thinking about it, he was, he was really no poorer than, than many first century Jews living in Israel. When he needed money, he could come up with it. When he needed to pay the temple tax, he sent Peter out there to catch a, a fish without any bait, and had a coin in its mouth. And as you heard me say, how in the world he was able to grab that hook with a coin in its mouth? That's one of the questions I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. But when Jesus needed money, he could come up with it because he owns all things. The true poverty of Jesus didn't consist in his financial poverty. The true poverty of Jesus consisted in his being made, as the Bible says, a little lower than the angels and becoming like us that he might suffer and die in our place. Because may I remind you, as God, he could not die. God cannot die. God had to become man in order to die to pay the penalty for our sin because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. And in so doing, he defeated the powers of hell. When he rose from the grave, triumphant over death and hell and that for which it was the penalty, sin. Yes, Jesus gave himself. And in so doing, he enriched and still enriches others. Yet for your sakes, he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Now I remind you that by nature, we are all bankrupt. We have no righteousness of our own. All of our righteousnesses, even the very best that we think we have done or could do, are as filthy rags in his sight. When God sees us, that's the way he looks at us. He sees us in our stinking, tattered rags of our flimsy, fabricated self-righteousness. But when we look at, at his righteousness, the righteousness of, of his own dear son, and we look away from ourselves unto Christ, a wonderful transfer takes place. God gives us all the blessings of salvation absolutely free. Forgiveness, righteousness, peace, eternal life, a hope beyond the grave, fellowship with God. These are the true riches. These are things money cannot buy. When Jesus said, make yourselves friends by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when they fail, the friends you've made by the mammon of unrighteousness will receive you into eternal tabernacles. And he talked about the true riches. What did he mean by the true riches? I'll tell you what he meant. He meant the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2 verse 7. The riches of his glory. Ephesians 3 verse 16. He meant the unsearchable riches of Christ. Romans 3 verse, or 11 verse 33. May I remind you, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, if we are saved, I hope you are this morning, we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We have been given by His divine power all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Who can put a price tag on that? If you have all that Christ gave up and all that He gives us in salvation... Is it too much to ask that we allow Him to grace us to give to His work? This is not just a fundraising scheme, folks. This is New Testament theology and methodology. 
I hope you're convinced of it. If you didn't get it and you want to talk about it, come see me this week. I'll be more than happy to answer your questions. Jesus proved the sincerity of his love by giving himself for us. And now he asks us to do the same. Would you look at verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8? And I'll be done. I speak not by commandment. Paul said, I don't have to do this. And you don't have to give either, he says. I speak not by commandment, by, by occasion of the forwardness of others, these saints in Macedonia. And to prove the sincerity of your, what class? Your love. You know what? In the light of Calvary love, shouldn't the word sacrifice just disappear from our vocabulary? Someone has well said, you can, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You can't do it. So what was the secret to the Macedonians giving? Was it just a, a spirit of philanthropy? Were they just unusually empathetic with others that had needs? And with the plight of their suffering brethren? Oh no. I'll tell you what the secret to the giving of the Macedonian believers was. Are you listening? It was the grace of God operative in their hearts. Do you think God still bestows that grace today? Or has the statute of limitations run out? But again, as Dr. Halsey would often say, he doesn't bestow grace to be stowed. Uh-uh. If we're doing like this, waiting for God to give us something, and then we do like this, God's not likely to give us very long. But if we're willing to be a channel of His mercy and grace, and we do this, you'll find the inexhaustible stores of God's riches, the riches of His grace. Let's pray. Father, when we turn in those cards next Sunday, I pray that that amount written will reflect the grace of God in our hearts. We marvel with the great apostle. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Oh, Father, help us to be like those Macedonian believers that are just overwhelmed and overcome by the exceeding grace of God that allowed them to even hear the gospel. Will you do in our hearts what you did in their hearts? I pray that these missionaries that come our way, some of them, of course, we already support, but others are looking for support. I pray that they will be enlarged by us to reap souls in the whitened harvest fields and the regions beyond. And as you prove our love, help us to pass the test, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.